0: If you would, please open in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, if you follow along, I'm going to be reading the entire chapter. I'll really be discussing verses 15 through 23, but it seems best to place everything in context as... Apostle Paul lays out the the riches, the beauty of our salvation, and then also the prayer that he prays in light of the riches that we have received that we might truly be able to understand them. And certainly as we press into this new year, that's our passion, our desire, that we would know the greatness of what has been given to us in Christ and that we would live out those truths in the power of the Spirit of God. So Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus... Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, I too, Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us, who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. And it's the time of our elders retreat in which we gather for fellowship and prayer, accountability, evaluation, and even planning for the future. As always, it was a sweet and encouraging time as we talked through the things that the Lord has done, the ways that he has strengthened and encouraged us individually and as a church over the past year. And we're delighted at the generosity, the vibrancy, the diligence, and the faithfulness of this growing body. We're thankful for the ways in which the Lord has protected our unity. He has given us good hope by his grace. And as we consider the needs of the congregation in the year ahead, one of our primary convictions is that we need a continued focus on the greatness of God and what He has done for us in Christ so that we are not unduly distracted by the pleasures of the world, but also not distracted by the cares of the world. In this way we can accomplish the work that, has, that God has for us as we live in this world that He has given for us to be a part of. Now, For that reason, it seems good to consider the prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Ephesians as he cries out to God that the Ephesians might know him ever more deeply. Studying Ephesians 1 this morning, therefore, accomplishes two vital necessities. It keeps us focused on the person and work of Christ, and it reminds us that prayer is an essential foundation for the successful accomplishment of God's work through his church. So what we'll see this morning is that prayer is an essential part of God's work in enabling the believer to understand and apply the riches of the salvation that we have received in Christ. Prayer is an essential part of God's work in enabling the believer to understand and apply the riches of the salvation that we have received in Christ. God's work goes forth through the prayers of his people. Now, as we read in the book of Ephesians, as we come to verse 15, Paul has already laid out the work of God in election and predestination, that God has chosen us from before the beginning of time, that He has set His love upon us, that we would come into a saving relationship with Him, a depth and an intimacy of relationship which we will then experience for all of eternity. Paul then has worked his way through the work of Christ and salvation, the ways that Christ has given His life, has poured out His his blood for us that we might have redemption, that we might be saved and that we might hear then the message of that truth and hearing it that by the work of the Spirit of God, we would then be able to enter into a relationship with God through Christ. And that the Spirit himself seals us and preserves us unto the time of Christ's return. So really, he's laid out, Paul's laid out the Trinitarian work of salvation. God in his plan, the Spirit, or the, the, Jesus Christ in the work that he's accomplished on our behalf. And then the Spirit of God as he takes that work and applies it to our hearts and then protects and preserves us so that we might be, be, be safe in this world confident and and absolutely convinced that we will remain walking faithfully with the Lord until He returns again. So this morning, we're going to look at verses 15 through 23, really kind of an overview of them, that we might, might just be in awe of the work that God has done, but that we also might emulate this prayer. This is really, as we, as we begin in verse 15, this is a prayer of the apostle Paul that flows out of his joy and delight at the work of Christ. And it's a prayer that we would know and understand this work ever more deeply. This is what Christians do. We are, everything that we are, all that has happened to us is, it, that is beneficial comes through the person and work of Christ. And so our primary prayers, although at times we pray for, for physical needs, these are appropriate to do, our primary prayers are built around the issue of knowing and loving Christ on the basis of what he has done. So this morning we'll look at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in four parts. The motivation for Paul's prayer, the attitude of his prayer, the audience, and then the content of what Paul prays for his people. Let's begin with the motivation for prayer. Why is Paul praying this prayer? Verse 15. Paul says, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Paul says, for this reason. For what reason? Why is he praying? Because he has just gone over the tremendous riches that are found in Christ. And therefore, the prayer that would Ask God to strengthen the hearts of the believers to know and understand that work of Christ is an, it's a necessary prayer. It flows out of the greatness of the riches that we've been given. We cannot afford to lack understanding of the greatness of our salvation. There's a lot of things that we might not understand in this world. There's a lot of things that we won't ever know, things that boggle our minds when it comes to science or the things that, you know, just mathematics or other things that we wouldn't understand. But there is one thing, that the Christian must must be able to understand. And that is the greatness of what God has done, the greatness of our salvation, the person and work of Christ. But this is only, only happens supernaturally. So Paul says, for this reason, I'm going to pray for you that you would know and understand, appreciate, and apply these truths. So the riches that we have received in redemption are the primary motivation for Paul's prayer. And really, that's why we ought to pray. We don't simply pray to get things. We don't pray because we, we want, want our own personal gain. We pray because of the greatness of the salvation that we have received that we would understand it, that others would understand it, because only as we have that understanding will we truly be able to live in this world in a way that's, that, that is worthy of the calling we've received. It's worthy of the greatness of the salvation that God has provided. This should drive us to prayer, the greatness of salvation. Yes, the urgency of needs, those are important things. But fundamentally, the most important reason to pray is that, is that God has done for us in Christ that which could we could never have accomplished, that has rescued us from our own sins and has rescued us from eternal hell. So the riches that we have in redemption should be a primary motivation for us to pray. The the joy of that is there isn't any particular circumstance then that needs to motivate us to pray, as though somehow we needed some catastrophe or some difficulty or, or some trial to drive us to prayer. No, the greatness of what God has done is always constant. He's accomplished it fully in Christ, and so therefore our prayers pour forth continually on the basis of the riches of what we have received. But it is fascinating that Paul goes on to say, he says, for this reason, because of the greatness of what God has done, the work of God, the work of Christ, the work of the Spirit of God, I'm praying for you. But also, he mentions what he has heard about the, the Ephesians as a reason for his prayer. He says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. The idea that, that the Ephesians, having heard this truth, Having, having been given the truth of the gospel, Paul brought it himself. He came and he preached in Ephesus. And then he, he spent a, a, a long period of time there, a year and a half there, really bringing to bear the realities of that preaching that he had given and extending these truths so that they would live for Christ. But Paul says, I've heard that you have faith, that you have responded to the greatness of the message that you have heard by repenting and believing. This prayer that Paul is praying is for believers, He is praying that those who know Christ, those who have responded to Christ, would be continually energized, strengthened, and built up on the basis of what they know. Initially, there's the exercise of faith. We hear the truth of what God has done. We recognize that because of our sins, we are in need of the redemption, the payment, the price being made for us in Christ to pay for our sins that we could not pay. Having recognized our sin, repenting of it, turning from it, recognizing that we deserve eternal hell, we then place our faith in Christ, the work that he has done. We do this in the power of the Spirit of God. And as we do so, then we continue to exercise faith. That faith is a gift to us. It is granted to us by God himself. And yet it is then something that we continue to exercise. Paul says, having heard of this faith, I'm going to pray that you would continue to exercise faith that you will continue to believe the gospel that you have heard, that you have uh, the, per, the person and work of Christ in whom you have placed your trust. So having heard of their faith, he then prays. If someone has not put faith and trust in Christ, they have not taken hold of the riches of what they have been given. And therefore, there is no need to pray that they would know them more or know them more deeply. The prayer would be simply that they would come to the recognition of their need. Well, the Ephesians... Came to that recognition It's not that we continu- don't continually remember our need of salvation, but we're not continually coming to Christ for salvation day in and day out. We've been granted that. We've put faith and trust in Him, in His power, according to His purpose. And so those that have done that need this ongoing reminder. We need to always be looking back at, at what God has done so that it strengthens and deepens our exercise of faith into the future. Paul says, having heard of your faith. And that faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, our master, ruler, king the God of the universe who came to live on this earth, Jesus' earthly name. That as the God-man, fully God and fully man. And then he is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the one who came to save us from our sins. So this is having, having contemplated the greatness of redemption, having heard of the faith that they had placed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he's speaking to believers who can, in fact, delight in and have their faith deepened by the reminder of the beauty of what God has done in Christ He then says that there's a a, a second thing that he heard about them, that I've heard of your faith but also your love. The love that you have for all the saints. And these two go hand in hand. If Paul had simply heard of their faith and they had no love, it would be an indication that the faith was not real. Faith always works its way out in love. where we have a delight to see others looking like Jesus, a longing that they would come into right relationship with God through Christ that they might be able to take on the character of Christ. This is love. We're willing to do anything necessary to see others looking like Jesus because that is the very reason for which we were created. That is the reason for which the greatness of the gospel was given to us that we might take on Christ's character, making Christ look great and thus bring glory to God whose one longing is to exalt his Son. His greatest and highest desire, the greatest desire of the Father is to glorify the Son and he does so through the, through the faith, Believers exercise coming into the family of God, becoming part of then the body of Christ that bring this glory to the Son. So a love for the saints is an essential outflow, a necessary outflow, and one that will come from a heart that has truly been transformed. And there will be a love for all the saints, not some of the saints. We don't pick and choose those whom we love. Love is unconditional in that sense. When love truly flows from faith, it isn't exercised only towards those that we have a particular affinity for. Love is, is given, is granted to all, and in particularly in the body of Christ, that unique and special love that God has for his people, that we then share for his people, that love is to be showered upon each person in his body. And that's one of the things that we delight in as elders of this church, to watch, to to have heard of, we too have heard of your faith, the fact that you have put faith and trust in Christ, you're exercising that faith, and that you have a love for all the saints. It is a delight to us to see the love of God flowing out of your hearts continually enveloping those who come, giving out to those who even are, are, are sometimes difficult, those who are hard to love, which is most of us, all of us at any given time, can be difficult to love. And it is a joy to hear of your faith, that that when it is truly reflective of the work of God in our hearts, then our love is not restrained. See, it's human love that can't be poured out to those that don't give us anything in return. It's human love that is only given selectively to those whom we deem to be valuable. It is the love that comes from faith, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, that can and must be poured out on everyone. And again, particularly the body of Christ, those whom God has saved, and those upon whom he has placed his unique and special love. Now, you might say, well, well why pray for these things? If, if they already exist, this faith and love, why, why is Paul so passionate to pray? Because although, although these things exist as a result of the work of the Spirit of God in the heart, that true work of regeneration, which, which brings repentance and faith in the first place, the exercise of these things is quickly lost. That is it, is, it quickly grows, it fades in our own hearts if we are not careful. Certainly as those who have been saved and regenerated by the Spirit of God, these things are never fully lost. There is true faith exercise. There is love that flows out of us. And yet these things can, can fade when we place our desires, when we get distracted by the things of the world. So Paul prays that they would continue to remember what they have been given so that their faith and love would continue to be poured out at the highest possible intensity. First Peter 1.22, Peter prays for, for the believers. He says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So we must never stop praying this prayer, that we would continue to exercise the faith that God has given us, that we would continue to pour out the love that has been shed abroad in our hearts, because these things can fade. The world can distract us, and so we begin to get bitter or angry. We begin to selectively place our love only upon those who seem to be giving back to us. Our faith is, is only exercised at times of greatest need instead of continually, where we are always recognizing that when things are good, when things are difficult, that we take the truths of the Word of God, we believe them, and we put them into practice. And so we, as Paul prays for the Ephesians, so we as elders have prayed and do pray for you as a congregation, and we encourage you, we urge you, that you would pray the same prayer, that you would pray that the the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus would be continually expressed through this congregation. These things are supernatural. That is why we pray for them. They do not happen naturally. They're not something that happens simply according to our own effort, our own willpower. It's the Spirit of God that enables us to exercise faith and love. And so the foundation of the pursuit of those things is always prayer, where we are recognizing our neediness. We're crying out to God for the supernatural work that only He can do through the truths of His Word to bring about this faith and love. That's Paul's motivation. And that is our motivation for prayer at all times, that God would do his work, that he would be glorified, that his people would exercise the faith and love necessary to carry out the work that God desires to accomplish. And it's our longing that that would be the case in this coming year. We will not continue to exercise faith and love in in light of, in a response to the riches of our redemption if we do not pray. And if the Spirit of God isn't powerfully enabling us to accomplish that, we are in desperate need of the work that only the Spirit of God can do. Well, next we have the attitude of Paul's prayer. Just as I pray these things, and he says, I do this uh, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which, which exists among you. He says, verse 16, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. He was eager to do this. Too often in prayer we can view it as a chore perhaps, something that is something that is difficult for us or something that you know, we have to get to so we can get to the rest of our day. No, prayer becomes, should become for the believer a delight. Why? Because there's a real God to whom we actually pray who actually accomplishes his work through right. prayers. He uses the prayers of the saints. It's not our power, it's his we take hold of that. We petition him for that. We are part of his purposes as we pray that these things would, would happen. We should be eager to pray for one another that we would continue to exercise faith and love. Paul was eager. He says, I don't cease. The idea there is that he never willingly stopped. It's not the only thing that he did. He had a lot of churches to pray for. He was out evangelizing. He had you know, travel to do and things to take care of. But always he returned back as quickly as possible to prayer. And that's the idea. He did not cease. He was eager to pray. He did not view it as a chore to have to pray. And so he longed at at every opportunity to take the time to pray for the Ephesians, to pray for the other churches. And we do pray, I pray, that this would be your passion and my passion this year, that we would be eager to pray. That it would not be a chore for us. It can be, and we have to press through when it's difficult, when it's early in the morning and we're, we're, we're fading in our attention. There is work that is done in prayer, but it should be eager. We should long to pray because of the greatness of what we've received and the, and, and the work that God will do and the necessity of prayer for that work to go forward. Plus, says, I'm eager, I do not cease to give thanks for you. His prayer was thankful. And this is something that we need to remember as well. Always our prayers are offered up to the Lord with thankfulness. Thankfulness for what he has done, but also thankfulness for the people around us, for the people whom he has saved. Again, even the difficult ones, even the ones with whom we have wrestles, that we are thankful for God's work in them and saving them, but also then in using them to pour out their giftedness into the body that we might grow and that the work of God might go forward. We are to be thankful. Paul says, they don't cease giving Thanks for you. Paul says this in many places in in his epistles. Philippians 1, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And that's the challenge. Too often my prayers are not joyful enough. They're not directed by faith to to the delight in people that God has. The delight that, that, that motivated him to send his own son to die that we might come into right relationship with him. This is a joy and a thankfulness that are Holy Spirit empowered and yet are to be part of our prayers at all times. These are things that we need to have discipline to exercise. It's a discipline of being joyful, of not allowing ourselves to be apathetic in prayer. And it's not so much an emotion. We don't have to crank up some kind of emotion in prayer. We're directing our affections towards the Lord by faith, knowing the principles of the word and considering carefully his purposes for his people. This enables us to be thankful. It enables us to be joyful, first for what God has done, and then to be thankful for God's people and how God is working in and through them. Paul says, with eagerness, I am praying, I do not cease. And I am praying thankfully, thankfully for the people and thankfully to God for all that he has done. And then I think there's a consistency that is pictured here. As he has this eagerness, he says, while making mention of you. This this is his present tense way of saying, I'm doing this continually. It is my desire to be thankful, but this is done on a consistent basis, it's not a one-time prayer for them. That is It is constantly bringing them before the Lord in thankfulness, praying for their needs, but also praying that they would respond in, in wisdom, in grace, in power to the, to the greatness of the salvation that they have received. Now, I need to remind you, that in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians is a prison epistle. that is, Paul is writing from prison, and as he does so, he's not whining and moaning about his estate, what's happening to him in prison. he's taking the opportunity that he has, really being set aside from other work that he could be doing, so he's doing the work of prayer. and this is important for us as well. Sometimes we look at on prayer just maybe simply as a chore or something that, that you know has to be accomplished. yet Paul is instead of being concerned about his circumstances, he has taken the opportunity in his difficulty to turn that back around to prayer. I don't know what's going to happen this year. I don't know what's going to happen to you. I don't know what's going to happen to, to, to my family or even to us as a church. I do know this, that there is nothing that could happen to us that should keep us or that can keep us from prayer. There's other things that you can't do. Sometimes in in the history of the church, people have had their Bibles removed. They get placed into prison, and so they have no opportunity for the scriptures. Yet no one can take from us the privilege of prayer. And too often we get caught up in our circumstances, discouraged and frustrated. We don't think about other people the way that we ought. We don't remember the goodness of what God has done for us in Christ, and so we're not motivated to pray, and we waste our time. So much time wasted. In our anxiety, in our worry, in our complaints, in our frustration, in our pursuits of things that are not necessary, we need to take that time and we need to pray. Samuel said this to the people of Israel in 1 Samuel 12, 23. He said, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. That's a powerful thought. The idea that the sin of omission, that we would refuse to pray, that we would not pray, that we get distracted from praying really is a sin against other people because we are called to love them. We are called to to, stimulate them to love and good deeds. And that all begins, every bit of it begins with prayer. This is certainly challenging. It's challenging to you. It's challenging to myself as I consider all of the things that go on in a day and in my life. And yet, this, this is something that motivates my thinking that I would not sin against you, I'd not sin against my family, that not sin against the missionaries that we support, the, uh, the others around the world by refusing to pray for them. So that is Paul's attitude. And now, his audience, who is he praying to? This is important. We'll just mention it uh, in, in passing. We won't dig deeply into it. But it's a fascinating statement that he makes here in verse 17. He is praying Verse 17, 2, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you. It's important for us to remember that we're not praying to ourselves. We're not praying to some, some, some you know, vague deity. We're praying specifically to the God of the Bible and specifically to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul highlights as, as we consider the audience of his prayer, the one to whom he is praying, is the Father's relationship to the Son. That's the idea here, that they have been eternally related as the Trinity, Father and Son, and the Trinity fully, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Son is, is beloved of the Father, and as the Son takes on flesh in the incarnation and comes to live upon the earth, that the Father's relationship with him is such that that love continues. Really, that what the Son is doing is in light of love of his Father, the Father's love back to the Son, so that he might accomplish the work of redemption, so the Father would give to the Son the love gift of, the, of, of a redeemed people. So this relationship is highlighted. Everything that God is doing begins first with his love for the Son and his desire to see his Son glorified. That's why Paul prays to the Father who is the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their relationship is highlighted. Yes, God's relationship with us is vital. Yes, we need to recognize and remember that God has poured out his love upon us, but that is all through the Son. That is all as a result of his love for, his desire for the Son to be glorified, that Inter-Trinitarian relationship and love, which has existed from before the beginning of time and will exist into eternity future, that is the God to whom we pray, and we need to remember this. We pray to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of that, of course, is 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 has the Spirit underneath it. The Spirit is the member of the Trinity who who pushes glory to the Father and the Son. So even as the Spirit inspires this to be written. He inspires Paul to write, exalting the Father through the Son while himself remaining, as it were, in the background, underneath all of that. It is the Spirit of God that enables us to understand these truths, and the Spirit of God is a member of the Trinity who really brings about the Father's delight to glorify the Son by, by putting the, the Father's plans into practice or, or making them effective. That's what the Spirit does. So Paul prays to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, when Jesus was on earth... The Father affirmed this reality of the belovedness of His Son and that everything was to be focused on the Son. Luke 3.22, the Holy Spirit descends, this is Jesus' baptism, He comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon Christ in bodily form like a dove, and a voice comes out of heaven saying, you are, this is the Father speaking to the Son, you are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. He announces this to all who are around so that all of the focus would be and will be placed back upon the Son, so that the, the glory of God might be might be exalted because the Son is receiving the glory and attention that he deserves. Notice here he says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. He is full of power, might. He is full of grace and love and truth. This glory is, is doxa in the Greek, a weightiness, a weight, a brilliance that is, is reflected in the weightiness of his value. The value of his character. The value of his person, we always and ever exalt God in his glory, not looking for our own. First Corinthians, or first Chronicles twenty nine, eleven. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything in the heavens and on earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. The Father is to be glorified, Paul in his prayer reminds us, reminds the Ephesians and, and gives back to God the glory that he deserves by saying you're the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the father of glory, the one who deserves all honor, all praise. Everything is from him, through him and back to him. This is our one purpose for living that the father is glorified and this comes through our repenting and believing, trusting in the son in the power of the spirit of God. Well, that's the audience Always and ever we remember to whom we are praying. The Father who loves his Son and sent his Son to ultimately bring him glory by, by redeeming a people for his own possession. And then that he is, he is deserving of. He, he must receive all of the glory in everything that we do. And this, again, is supernatural. If we do not pray these things, if we do not call out to, that, to our very Father that these would be accomplished, we will get distracted And we will seek the glory, or that glory will be placed in an institution, say, say Grace Community Church, or in some work that we're trying to do, rather than in the Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Well, now, the content. What does Paul pray for them? Verse 18, really in the middle of verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Really, this is the overarching presentation of the prayer. The rest of it really fleshes out what this means. What Paul longs for is that the people of in Ephesus, and, and that we, as the Church of God, would have an ever-increasing understanding of who God is. This is the essential work of the Christian. It's the work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God that we would ever increase and deepen in our knowledge of who God is. It says he may give you a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of revelation. In what? In the knowledge of him. What is wisdom? The, the, the true knowledge about God. The content of who God is, of what God has done. In this context, the idea of wisdom is not so much the application of the truth as it is the the knowledge of the the details of who God actually is. To have wisdom to know the character and nature of God and to actually understand that. That is true wisdom. The fear of the Lord and understanding of who he is, his character and nature, understanding of what he has done, that is the beginning of all true knowledge. To know him to understand who he is. And this is spiritually discerned, which is why Paul prays for it. So we must have this wisdom. We must know who God is. It says that it would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. I think we we have here a a combination. This often happens in Scripture where it's it's both the human spirit and mind here. That is their inner man. He's going to pray that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, So the idea of spirit here combines both our own inner man, our mind, our will, and our affections, but only it is viewing our inner man in light of the work of the Spirit of God within it. Because there's much discussion, well, is this talking about human spirit? Is it talking about the Spirit of God? It is clearly talking about both. This concept is the idea that believers have their inner man strengthened, empowered, and enlightened by the Spirit of God. And so ever and always, the inner man of the believer is viewed in light of the work of the Spirit of God in his inner man. They cannot be separated because the Spirit is always and ever at home living in the heart of the believer. They are forever, eternally joined And so when we speak of the Spirit, the inner man of a believer, we're always speaking of the work of the Spirit of God within the inner man, having washed it clean and now residing in, in the heart of the believer, strengthening and empowering everything that the believer does. We must understand this. Nothing that the believer does, does he do on his own. There is no spiritual ability apart from the work of the Spirit of God. And so when, we, when Paul speaks of the fact that they need to be thankful, that they need to have joy, that they need to exercise faith, that they need to have understanding, that can only happen if the Spirit of God is active and the Spirit is present and able to work in the heart of every believer because we have received him fully. So the Spirit of wisdom and revelation is the Spirit of God at work in the heart of the believer, strengthening his mind, will, and affections to know and understand the character of God and to live in light of that truth. This is true for every believer. Thus, everything that the believer does that pleases and honors God is a supernatural work of the Spirit of God. Although we put in effort, although we read the Bible, we go to church, we exert our wills towards these things, it is only because of the work of the Spirit and in the power of the Spirit that we can do this, and it is only the work of the Spirit of God to make true spiritual change. It's a supernatural work, and so we pray for it. It is not accomplished simply by our thinking, our reading, our doing. It is those things always in combination with and undergirded by the power of the Spirit of God himself. This idea of the spirit of wisdom and revelation. This is not the revelation of new knowledge given. Revelation is sometimes used that way. Paul uses it in Ephesians 3 where he says, I was given a revelation and I give that to you. But here, because Paul is talking of things that they already know, The idea of a revelation here is that there would be a deeper understanding. Really, we would see this this idea. Revelation is is revealing. It is making something known. And so what we have here is, is a making known the riches and the depths of what Christ has done. This isn't new information given. Paul just gave the information. There's nothing new to be added to the gospel. Nothing new to be added to what is in the pages of Scripture. But we must have an increasingly deeper understanding of those truths. And that's what Paul is talking about here. A revelation. Really, we would call this illumination. Where the Spirit of God enables us to understand these truths in an ever-increasing depth so that we can live them out to uh, an, an, ever-increasing, an ever-increasing power, an ever-increasing effectiveness. And so he is praying that our inner man would be absolutely transformed in an ongoing way to know, to appreciate the, the person and work of Christ, the character and nature of God, so that a true fear of the fear of the Lord motivates us to accomplish the work that God has given us to do. And it is the Spirit of God who accomplishes this work. Colossians nine, Paul says, for this reason also since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We must have the Spirit, So that we can have true wisdom and understanding about what God has for us. So that's the overall content of the prayer. That our hearts would have the Spirit of God's work so that we would constantly be deepening in our understanding of who Christ is and what he's done. And this is an ongoing subjective work. That is, that the Spirit of God takes the objective truths and the principles of Scripture and every moment of every day, he is strengthening us and empowering us as as those principles are are brought brought to strengthen our mind, will, and affections. The Spirit uses that truth to Every decision that we make, every thought that we think is then changed according to those principles. That is, he empowers us to live those truths out. So the, the, the truths are propositional and they are objective. The work that the Spirit is doing in an ongoing way is subjective. That is, is happening moment by moment. And it is really it is something that we do not perceive directly. We perceive it through our mind, will, affections, and conscience being changed into the image of Christ as we recognize from the truths of Scripture. So it's an ever-increasing understanding of who God is. And this is essential for every Christian. Now he fleshes it out, right? In really beginning in, in verse 18. So this prayer that he has prayed, he says again in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And here I think he says he's expressing what this wisdom, the spirit of wisdom and Revelation looks like. Right? So this is an ever-increasing appreciation of God's work in Christ. That's truly how God is known, through the person and work of Christ. So he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling or are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It's a, it's a, it's a sweet illustration. The eyes of the heart. If you walk into a cave... And you get far far enough into the cave, all light is gone and you can see absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter how hard you look, how hard you stare, you can put your hand in front of your face, you won't see anything. Your eyes are darkened. It is only when we receive light that the eyes then can perceive anything as it truly is. Well, this is true spiritually. Our hearts are darkened apart from the work of God through the Spirit of God and the principles, principles of his word. And so he uses those principles in the power of the Spirit to bring light to the inner man. So it are as though our heart, our mind, our will, our affections had eyes and they were darkened. And then when Christ bursts into our hearts through the work of the Spirit of God our, and, and the principles of his word, the, the eyes of our heart are, are enlightened. We can then see as we truly need. As though the cave has then been, has been lit with a, with a flood lamp so that we can actually see the truths about who God is. Apart from God, every unbeliever has a heart that is absolutely dark, as dark as the, as the deepest cave. But when the Spirit of God comes, and there's this ongoing enlightenment and illumination as we know these principles, as we put them into place, and as sin is burned away, there's increasing light shed into the inner man, and that's what Paul's praying for. That's what we need this year. We need an increasing enlightenment. That is not, some again, some new knowledge, some mystic, Gnostic understanding of who God is, but a true understanding of what the Scriptures say. And this happens in an ongoing way. You know this to be true. The things that you understood about God when you first came to Christ now are deeper and sweeter to you because you have this ongoing illumination. And it is what we pray for. These truths become more deeply entrenched in our heart. We believe them as it were more strongly. We have a greater ability to exercise faith, and the sweetness of our God and His work within our hearts grows and deepens. That's the idea of being our hearts being enlightened—not simply knowing truth, but the truth being applied to our mind, our wills, and our affections, so that our life for Christ is deep and strong. And it is the Spirit of God that applies this. Well, what are the things that He does? Right? What, what are what are the what's the work of Christ that He illumines us to? It's the hope of our calling, so that, so that you will know. Again, the idea is know. Right? The, the, these truths have to be understood, and our, um, our hearts have to be enlightened so that this is true. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. See, we have a lot of hopes, things that we want to accomplish, things in our lives, things in our families, things in our workplaces. But there's one hope that has to drive us, and that is the hope that comes from the calling that we have received this effective call of God unto salvation then, then drives everything else that we do. Because he has called us, everything about our life has changed and our one hope, the one sure principle in our lives, because this hope is not something that we, we, we think may happen, that we, well, I hope that, that you know, this, this exciting thing, this promotion will happen, or I'll get to go to this special place. No, this hope is assured. And the hope is this, that because of the work of the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, we will take on the character of Christ in an ever-increasing manner, and we will do so until the time when Christ returns again to burn away sin, to glorify our bodies, and to bring us into a perfect relationship with himself. This is our hope that we have the strength, ability, and command to look like Jesus. We can pursue that until he returns for us. And when he returns, we will then have the privilege of living with him for all of eternity. This is our one hope. The world could fall apart. The election may not turn out the way that you would desire. Your job may, may, everything about it may be different than you would expect it. Your family may not fulfill the expectations you have for it. But this this one reality is true. God will strengthen you to look like Jesus and and send Jesus for us that we will go and be with him forever. This hope is assured, and that's the hope of our calling. You are called as a Christian, and therefore he will finish out that work that he has begun in you. So they will know the hope of their calling. What are the riches of our inheritance in the saints? Or really, it says, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? I think there's two concepts here. One is a sweet one when it says the riches of his inheritance in the saints part of this idea here is that is that the inheritance of God or what God has been seeking to accomplish is bound up in in the salvation of believers that is a chosen people a redeemed people set apart for his son is the inheritance that he really gives to the son and so the father in accomplishing the work of redemption is is carrying out is receiving. And inheritance through the very work that Christ provides or that Christ accomplishes in bringing, in bringing the uh, redeemed people to himself. And that inheritance, that those saints, he gives to his son as a gift. And then bound up in all of that is when we, because we are in union with Christ, the inheritance that we receive are all the riches of Christ himself. 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So this idea that we are part of God's plan and that we really participate, we're, we're part of the inheritance, part of the, the riches given back to the Son, and yet we then, as a result of God's work in us, take, partake of all of the riches of Christ himself. And we do this for all of eternity. And then third here, the, the thing that we need to know, the, the, the rich heritage that we have in Christ is the surpassing greatness of his power. So that we will know what is the hope of his calling, rather what, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. We need this. Because at times we can wonder, well, well will this take place? But this all sounds wonderful, that we would have this rich inheritance, that, that we actually get to participate in being part of the inheritance to the son, and that we have the, this, this privilege and opportunity to serve and honor the Lord. Will we continue? Do Will we have the strength? Will we be able to accomplish these things in a world that's increasingly dark? Will the church go forward? Will our faith continue? And the answer is, we trust and we re, uh, remember the greatness of the power of God on our behalf. This power, the very, very power of the God of the universe himself is extended towards us so that this hope is assured, so that this inheritance cannot fade, so that the work of God can never be thwarted. And so when we look around us and we begin to wonder if the things in this world, if the, the nature of our culture, if the enemies that are coming against us, if even the evil one himself could overcome us, we need to remember this. And we need to pray that those around us would remember these truths so that we do not Grow fearful so that we do not grow anxious because if this great power is constantly given on our behalf, exercised for our protection and for our ongoing faithfulness, then we do not need to fear that someone could take it from us. This is a surpassing greatness of the power of the God of the universe towards us. So we need an ever-increasing awe and appreciation then of God's power displayed through Christ. This is the third thing that he prays for. Right, that we would know and understand God, that we would have a greater appreciation and live according to the work of God through Christ, the hope of His calling, the riches of His inheritance, and then the surpassing power, and that we would delight in the power that is given because this power is really flows to us through Christ. Again, verse 19. What is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe? What is this power like? And how is this power displayed? It is displayed through Christ. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God's power was displayed in Christ's resurrection. Because Christ lives, we will live. Because Christ overcame, we will overcome. This is assured. It already happened in Christ, so therefore it will happen in us because we have been united with Christ permanently. We cannot be disconnected from him. And so the power of God that is displayed in Christ will always be displayed to us. And so therefore, we have no reason to ever doubt this reality because we believe that Christ has risen. We believe that God displayed this power through Christ. It's the basis of our salvation. And so we understand that this power will always be extended to us because God has already demonstrated it in Christ. He has shown his power by raising him from the dead. Christ defeated death, therefore we will. Christ overcame all spiritual powers, therefore we will. And we will have that inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. So God's power was displayed in Christ's resurrection. His power is displayed in an ongoing way in Christ's authority. Verse 20. This power was brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Giving Christ all power, all rule, all authority. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We have no fear of earthly rulers. We have no fear of spiritual forces because Christ rules them all. He earned this, right? He had it. He he exhibited it. He carried it out even before his incarnation, But he demonstrates his worthiness as he is ascended back to the Father. And the Father officially, as it were, grants him control, power, and authority over every power in the universe. He's infinitely greater than anything that could come against us. And we need to remember this. There's no need for fear. There's no need for us to be anxious that somehow we would be overcome by a greater power because Christ rules them all and we are in Christ And we retain the favor of God because the work of Christ has been applied to our lives so there's nothing that Satan could appeal to that would cause God to turn against us. There's no power in the universe which can take us from the hand of God because we are in his son. And so he cannot and will not allow it. The son rules all powers. All bend the knee to him. And by his grace, we have done that already. We've bent the knee in repentance and faith. He is our Lord and our master and our ruler. And as he rules then over all other rule and authority, as he is the king of kings and Lord of lords, what can shake us? What could take us from his powerful protection this year or any year as long as the Lord tarries? What can rock our confidence if we understand that every atom in the universe and every power in the world bends the knee to Jesus? We forget this. We are in need of spiritual strengthening to remember it and to take hold of it so that we cease fearing. And that when the difficult things in our lives begin to overwhelm us, we recognize that the power of God is overseeing all circumstances for the good of his people and that there is no one who can thwart the hand of God. There's not some, some way that someone is, has been able to get through the power of God to harm us in ways that are eternally destructive. It's absolutely impossible. He is superior to all rule and authority and then this final thought that his his power as head over the church God's power is displayed in Christ's headship over the church verse 22 he put all things in subjection under his feet he gave him Christ as head over all things to the church this almighty one, this powerful ruler is ruling over the church he is the one who is directing the church so we cannot be defeated, he is the one who is protecting the church so it cannot be harmed he is the one who is empowering the church so it can accomplish its work so this very specific statement that although he rules over everything he has a very specific role in being the head of the church, the one who directs it guides it, empowers it and commands it and this is the greatest comfort to us I don't run the church. The elders don't run the church. There's not some other external power that runs the church. Christ rules the church, and so it will prevail. As we seek Christ, as we're strengthened and empowered to honor him and please him, his headship over the church will enable us to accomplish the work that has been given. And nothing can thwart that. No, no, no problem in our country no, no building difficulty, nothing can overcome the headship of Christ over his church. And then the, the beauty of what the church is, verse 23, which is his body. We are the very body of Christ. We are accomplishing his work. We are in his family. We have been given this work to do as an extension. As Christ remaining in this world through his people, we accomplish his work We are the fullness. This is so fascinating. His body, his church, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is all Christ is doing. The church is what Christ is doing, winning a redeemed people to himself and then using them to accomplish his purposes. That's the fullness of what he's doing. He's not doing anything else. The church is the work of God, the fullness of what God is seeking to accomplish. So why wouldn't we give all of our time, all of our lives, all of our effort poured into the church because it is Christ's fullness. It is not as though we're looking for something else. Christ will be fulfilled in some other way in some other thing that we might do. He is fulfilled in his church. This is a tremendous privilege that we would be called, that the church would be called his fullness. He is the one who rules it. he's the one who protects it. he's the one who guards it. And we then are the fullness of the work that he is doing. And yet, as we understand that that fullness, which is the church, is not finished in its work because there are more people that will become part of it. He will return when our work is done, when all who are to believe in him will and do. But until that time, we are, the church is being built so that we might express properly the fullness of Christ. So that's, that's our goal this year, that we would have a, an ever-increasing understanding of God, an ever-increasing understanding of the work of God in Christ, an ever-increasing understanding of the power of God exhibited for his people so that we can accomplish the work that God has given. And so just a, a couple of closing thoughts. How will we pursue this? How, how do we practically take these truths and, 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 and dig them deeply down into our experience this year? I don't have anything radical for you. I don't have any, some kind of new 10-step plan to you know, knowing having our eyes be enlightened. As Paul prays these things, he is praying that we would pray. And so I urge you that you would begin this year by carving out more time that you would, you would look for ways that you can not just do, do, be praying throughout the day as you must and as we need to, but that you would be creating time to, to have those deeper, longer periods of time where you are praying these things for God's people, that you are praying for the spiritual health and growth of the church. Imagine if each one of us would dedicate our time every day, a, a significant period of time, to praying for the spiritual growth and depth of the church, we would see a transformed church this year, but it's going to take time. You, I hear so many people. I don't have time. I, I, I'm busy. I, i have a hard time carving out, you know, the time to pray. The apostle Paul was a busy man. The Lord Jesus was incredibly busy, and yet he chose to carve out time to pray. So whatever it is, if you pray much now, pray more. If you pray little now, pray more, so that you might pray much. There's no time frame. Not prescribing a certain amount of minutes. I'm prescribing more because that's what Scripture prescribes. A continual, ongoing growth and depth in our prayer. This, of course, leads us then to the Word of God. You can't pray effectively unless you know these truths. Paul is praying that the eyes of their heart will be enlightened to the things that they already know. The Spirit of God does not impart new information to you so that you can be strengthened. He illumines the information that you already have, the truth that you already know. So we put into practice by reading, studying, memorizing, meditating, and applying the word of God. That's how this prayer goes forth. That's how it's activated, is that we know these truths and that the spirit of God then illumines them to us. He does not illumine truths that you have not read, that you are not pursuing. As you do that, you are able to understand and apply them. So yes, prayer and the word, but also fellowship being with God's people who strengthen and encourage and deepen you in these truths, talking of these things, encouraging one another. This is vital that we gather together so that we can be strengthened. It is a means that God uses so that the spirit of God will take the word of God and make it active. We must be with God's people. I encourage you, I challenge you this year. You're going to have to set aside more time to be with God's people. I'm not talking about, you know, you've got to show up at more children's ministry and more official ministries of the church, and you better come in and do sound ministry. No, you need to be with God's people. Yes, we have official times we do that. The fellowship groups and the Sunday morning times that we have, you need to carve out time to fellowship with the people of God so that you are strengthened to accomplish the work. You can't only spend time with God's people. You need to be in the world and impact the world and and serve in the world and and evangelize. But you're going to have to carve out time to be with the people of God so that the word of God and the prayer that you are pursuing will be effective. We need to then pursue the ministries that the church has given and ministries that the Lord has given you in your own family and life, actively considering what are the places that I need to pour out my energy and effort in this year. That involves an ongoing sensitivity to evangelism. That is taking these very truths, and as they become more and more real to you, our hearts are burdened to pour them out towards others. We grow in vibrancy that way. The Spirit of God then uses the very principles we are telling others, the truths of the gospel, to strengthen our own heart. And as we do this, my prayer is that we will grow, that we will cultivate a fear of the Lord. Matthew ten twenty eight says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. As we do these things, might you pray. Might you pray for this church. Might you pray for yourself that we would grow in a fear of the Lord. Might you, maybe every morning you would finish your time in prayer by crying out to God that we would fear him more, that delightful, dreadful, consuming, reverential awe of God that we would, that we would be known as people again who are God-fearers. And then finally that you would live with an eternal perspective this year, keeping in mind the hope of your calling what God is doing now, yes, in conforming you to the image of Christ, but all that, that for the purpose of, of awaiting the return of your Savior, who is the culmination of all of those things. So I'll end with 1 Peter 1. This is our, our reminder of an eternal perspective that drives us through this life remembering, looking back to see the things that Christ has done, crying out that the Spirit of God would strengthen us through these truths, and then working our way towards the future, looking to the return of Christ, because this is our ultimate hope. He is coming. He will return. And so everything that we have done and everything that we are will find fulfillment in Christ as it has been done for him and as it is the things that are given for us to do in Scripture. It will not fall to the ground. 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for the work of Christ on our behalf. That we have been given the fullness of redemption. That the price is paid in full. And we've been saved and rescued from the penalty of our sin, of, of an eternal death, of punishment away from you because of the of the real guilt that we have over the sin that we have committed. Lord, I pray that as we remember these truths, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would enlighten our eyes, that we would be able to see clearly and carefully the reality of what you have done. Or that as you do that, that we would deepen and grow in our appreciation for your person and character, that we would grow in our understanding of the work that you are doing, that we would delight in the truths of Scripture given to us so freely, so fully. And as we do so, that we would press on in accomplishing the work you've given us to do. Or help us to be people of prayer, people of your word, people of fellowship, people of evangelism and ministry that you've given us and a people who fear you. Father, we look to the return of your son. We put all of our hope in the fact that he will come for us again. And I pray that you would help us to live this year in light of this reality. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.